This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome to a special pop-up episode of the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm glad you're here. Now, I normally only interview women, but occasionally I find there is a guy that uh, deserves a slot on the podcast, and one of those people is my guest today, Ryan Hampton. Now, I read Ryan's book, American Fix, and I thought it was incredibly an incredibly important tool for um, how we face the opioid epidemic and really the, the drug crisis um, overall in the United States. Um, Ryan is the kind of guy that you wouldn't have thought would be trapped in a drug addiction, but he was. He had formerly worked for President Bill Clinton in the White House. Um, he had worked with President Barack Obama, um, you know, just a normal guy. And he had got an injury, got prescribed pain pills, and that may not be how it always happens for everybody, but that was his um, first step into years of addiction. And he um, went to treatment facilities. Um, he, you know, his life kind of spiraled downward. Um, thankfully, he is now sober, has been sober for four years. And in his sobriety, he is truly making a difference. And we're going to talk about some of those things that he's doing today. Um, his book is one of those things. And I mean, I highly recommend it. It has all kinds of great suggestions, solutions, as well as pushing back on some of the stereotypes, narratives, the stigma attached to drug addiction, which by the way, um, is a disease and is something that people, um, once they're inside of that addiction, it's incredibly hard to get out of that. And in their there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding what addiction is, how people become addicted, and right now is the most important time to be talking about it. Uh, 72,000 people died from opioid um, overdoses in 2017. Those numbers are not going down. We need prevention. We need education. We need recovery programs that work. We need healthcare that works. I mean, we're a long way from getting this right, but Ryan is doing the hard work to make sure that lives are saved ultimately. So um, I just thank him for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm so impressed with what he's done on social media and just created this movement of people um, and just really brought humanity back to um, the faces of people that are dealing with addiction. So enjoy this conversation with Ryan Hampton. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So what we know about you, you're a recovery advocate and you're someone who is living in sustained recovery. You are a writer, a former White House staffer, a new fiance as of last week. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so That's like the best thing going on right now oh, too, yeah. so at the top. <laughs> I'm sure that trumps everything else. I mean, it's like love. What can be better? <laughs> right. Um, now I, I would love to go back and just hear though, the beginning of your story, what led you to where you are now? Um, where did your battle with drugs begin? You know, I, I, I thank again, thanks for having me on. Um, I was someone who had experienced, you know, some trauma, um, you know, in my childhood and, and there were a lot of issues that I think evolved out of that, but, uh, you know, someone who had drank, 
occasionally, you know, when I was in high school, I experimented with drugs. Um, but so did a lot of my other friends, you know, I ended up being, um, kind of that one in 10, uh, that developed an addiction, a substance use disorder. And it was really kind of a, a perfect storm of circumstances. So, uh, if we go back in the time machine, uh, just a couple of years, uh, I had worked in the white house, as you had mentioned in, in my intro there from 99 to 2001, I had this up and coming career in politics, uh, and policy, uh, left the White House in 2001, went to go work at the Democratic National Committee, and everything was looking on the up and up for me. And then in 2003, I injured my ankle, injured my knee while I was hiking uh, with my roommate in uh, Maryland uh, at this trail called the, the Billy Goat Trail, and found myself in the care of an urgent uh, care clinic, an urgent care doctor, where they prescribed me a very high-grade uh, opioid called hydromorphone, which is also known as Dilaudid. It's a derivative of morphine. It's extremely powerful. Um, and I was supposed to get that, that ankle and that knee checked out, um, get an MRI and, and, and get further continuing care for it. But I, I never did that. Uh, what I did do is I went back to the doctor uh, on more than one occasion and got another prescription and another prescription and another prescription. And where the perfect storm happened was right around that tail end of 2003, early 2004, I ended up moving back to Florida, which is where I'm from, South Florida, specifically Broward County. And if you know anything about uh, the modern day opioid crisis, before there was a full-blown opioid crisis, um, we had a pill mill crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and at the heart of that pill mill crisis was South Florida, specifically Broward County, um, where I got caught up in that really bad. I ended up seeing a uh, pain management physician at a pain clinic uh, in South Florida and walked out uh, with my first prescription for uh, Oxycontin um, it, sometime mid-2004. And um, it was kind of off to the races from there. You know, between 2004 and, and 2006, um, you, there were subtle signs of, of kind of a full-blown addiction that, you know, that was starting to, to onset with me. Um but then it, it started to to really take a hold of me to the point where I was becoming, you know, missing days at work and uh, money was going missing, you know, from my savings account and losing my health insurance and eventually becoming unemployable. Um, and in 2008, um, I went into one of those doctor's offices. I had been seeing multiple uh, by that time to, to keep up with the amount that I needed um, to just stay well. Um, and I had gone way beyond that power of choice, uh, you know, by that point, um, walked into the doctor's office, the state of Florida at that time had decided they were going to nip this problem. Um, and they were going to institute the first, uh, PDMPs, the physician drug monitoring database, uh, which was this big database that would track people and their prescriptions and know what doctors are seeing and what they're prescribing to you walked into one of these uh, doctor's offices and I was cut off abruptly and told that if I showed back up, you know, that I was a drug seeker and a junkie and an addict. And if I came back, I'd be arrested and they were going to put a, a trespass uh, order out for me. Um, and it was a very quick fall um, on that day uh, within a few minutes of leaving that office from, you know, prescription pills to, to heroin. Um, because my main objective at that point was to stay well you know, was not to go into withdrawal, which, uh, for anyone who's not aware of, of what that feels like, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Uh, it is, um, 
it's terrifying. Uh, you know, the, the substance is completely hijacked your brain. Your survival system is completely compromised. Um, and everything, you know, morals and, and beliefs and uh, needs, uh, you know, basic human needs go out the window uh, until you're able to, to, to get that drug, uh, to, to, you know, fulfill that brain receptor with that opioid. Uh, and that's where I was. Uh, you know, did we know everything we know today? Uh, back then, absolutely not. Of course not. Um, it, it was it was terrifying. You know, it was a it was a quick dive into homelessness and and panhandling on the streets and trying to get help here and there from public treatment centers and you know overdoses and and all the things that come with it. Um, but luckily, I, I did survive and and I was able to find help. Um, but. Uh, you know, that I, I certainly didn't think that when I left the White House in 2001, that that's where I was going to end up, uh, you know, in, in 2008, 2009. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's like, did you ever have a moment where you were, you know, kind of in the, in the midst of all of that? Did you stop and think, how did I get here? Yeah, I, I had several moments like that. Um, I, I would say I think the most telling moment, though, for me was was actually towards the beginning of my use um, when I was developing kind of full-blown addiction in, in, in 2004. Um, when I was in South Florida, I was working on a campaign for a, for a gentleman who was running for the United States Senate. I was still employed. Um, I had been seeing this pain doctor in South Florida getting these large amounts of Oxycontin and never really thought much of it. I mean, I literally had a pill bottle that I would take with me to work. It would sit on my desk. I mean, it was pretty widely accepted. It had my name on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was, nobody really thought too, too, you know, twice about it. And, um, one day I had run out of my prescription early, uh, the night before. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'll just, uh, get an appointment to the doctor tomorrow and I'll, I'll get in to see him in the next couple of days and everything will be fine. It was the first time I was really without my medication for any prolonged period of time. And I hadn't put at that point, and, and I know it sounds so naive to say now with everything we know, but this was really the headspace I was in at the time. I didn't put you know two and two together that no meds equals getting sick and withdrawal and that there's a physical dependence to this and there's a huge mental dependence. I mean, I just knew that it was taking away pain and I was feeling better and I was overperforming at work and, you know, all, all these other things. But one day I, I ran out and went into the office in the morning, like, like I do and like I did and, um, did my work at my computer. And right after lunch, I started to feel like really nauseous and sick and as you know, two o'clock came around at three o'clock came around at four o'clock came around. I was getting physically ill. I mean, like almost like unable to, um, to, 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 to work and to even be there. I was sweating and, you know, all sorts of things happening to my body and I'm, and, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I went into the bathroom, uh, and put some water on my face and literally almost fainted. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, wow, is there's gotta be a connection. Is this a mm-hmm. connection? You know? And then when that light bulb went off in my head, I was like, am I, am I like, am I hooked to this medication? Am I, is there like, am I addicted? Is this what addiction is? And, um, went back to my computer and and did some, you know, short Google searches really quick and, or may have been like, um, Yahoo at the time, Yahoo searches and, (laughs) and, um, saw that there was a connection there. And, and there was like this moment of acceptance of, 
wow, I need this medication and I'm, I'm hooked, like I'm physically hooked. But the first thought that came to my mind wasn't, you have a problem, Ryan, let's go seek help and find a rehab and go tell someone and, you know, maybe go see a doctor about this. No, 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 no. That wasn't the first thought. The first thought was, how do I get better? How do I get more? Um, and that's when I, I jumped into more illicit opioid use was, you know, getting the pills on the black market and getting, you know, doctor shopping and whatnot. Um, it, it was still, you know, a hard thing. I had, I had figured it out at that moment and it was kind of an aha moment, but it wasn't the type of moment where it was like, let me go ask for help. It was the moment of, oh, this is what I, this is what I'm dealing with now. Um, how do I manage that? Yeah. You thought, you thought. Well, yeah, that's kind of bad, but like I can, I can handle it. Is that kind of how it was? Right, right. It, it was like that. Um, but it also, you know, thinking back, um, I, I don't think there was really an opportunity for me to ask for help, even if I wanted to, because there were parts of me that year and going on and moments where I was like, I really need help mm-hmm. and I wish I could find help. But having that conversation with um, family members at the dinner table or, colleague. I mean, I was, I I was at at that moment, I knew I could like lose my job. Right. So much shame stigma goes with it. Right. So there was all of that. And, and it was very hard to have that discussion. So I, I hit it, you know, for, for, I hit it as, as best I could for a while. Um, but I didn't hide it that great. I think a lot of people knew, especially over the course of the years, but nobody wanted to call the question, including me. No one wanted to be the first person to step up and say, I think there's a problem here. Let's, let's get you some help. Um, it was still this very taboo uh, subject to bring up. And it is today for a lot of people. The same thing is happening. Well, I think your story is so kind of stands out to me so much because you are the story of the person that maybe we wouldn't expect to, ha- to you know, have this problem. You um, just, it's, you know, it's so striking to hear, you know, you worked for the, uh, the White House, you were working for these very high profile, uh, political campaigns. Like you met President Obama several times. Um, you have this powerful scene in the book where you actually get to meet him. Um, and this is in the, when, when you're in the middle of, of struggling with this. And right. it was just like that dichotomy of like seeing you struggling and then here you are shaking President Obama's hand. Um, you know, I think it's that that recognition um, that anyone can have this, um, you know, anyone can fall prey to addiction, um, addiction, not like the choice addiction, but as in like the uh, the the kind of like entity that comes upon you, you can't help it. Um, that is what is so scary. It's scary to me as I'm like raising two little kids and wondering, like, how am I going to keep them away from this? Um, so you know, today looking at kind of the scene, have things begun to improve since the awareness has come out? Have you seen things start to move in a positive direction from the kind of heyday of the 90s when the doctors were prescribing all of those medications and Big Pharma was uh, putting all of that inaccurate information out there? So I would say there's definitely been a shift. I don't think anybody can, can, can argue that, that there hasn't been a shift. Um, that shift has occurred as a result of more family members, more people impacted, um, you know, stepping up to the plate and, and, and identifying, identifying as a parent of loss. And we've seen this phenomenon. 
I think of late where, where family members are publishing the obituaries and they're putting the actual cause of death as being an overdose or someone in recovery like myself who's coming up and, and telling the story and, and encouraging others to do the same. Um, as, as that's been happening, we've been realizing there are just more and more of us than, than folks uh, realize you know, to throw a few numbers your way, because um, I think it's important and interesting. There's twenty, roughly 23 million Americans who live in long-term recovery just here in the United States, uh, roughly another 22 million Americans who are impact or who need help right now, uh, who are struggling. Uh, so you're looking at about 45 million Americans directly impacted. Uh, that's about one in three American households. So um, that's a big number. That's a lot of people. Um, and I think as you look at the, the the arc, the history arc of any social justice movement, any healthcare movement in this country, um, the more people stand out and they identify and the more that policy leaders recognize that this is an issue that's impacting every community and how large these numbers are, the more we start to get solutions. So yes, we have seen a shift um, in terms of, of, of funding, right? We've seen uh, the Support for Communities Act, which which Trump signed back uh, this past October, we saw you know the Cures legislation, the CARA legislation under Obama, uh, starting to see more investments in treatment, recovery, prevention infrastructures, um, but nowhere near scratching the surface what we need. And w- what I fear is that um, some of these policymakers believe that we either have or are solving the opioid addiction crisis, and we are far from solving it. You know, um, it, it, a couple billion dollars is, is a lot of money, but not unless it's spent in the right places. Yeah. And a yeah. Lot, yeah. I was going to say. A lot of this money is not, not, I mean, it's, it's, it's wise and some of it's going to the right places, but, you know, there's not enough people with lived experience who work on the ground floor uh, of the crisis who are at those decision-making tables. And as a result of that, we're starting to see money go towards like new university research centers on adi- on addiction and, mm-hmm. you know, more money going into treatment. Treatment's incredibly important, but not at the expense of, you know, uh, long-term recovery supports and behavioral health care supports. Like uh, those things need to be funded on par, uh, you know, with equity, with with treatment. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people realize that this is not a one-shot deal. Like, there's so many parts from prevention to treatment to recovery to, like, long-term recovery. Um, And when it comes to the money, like, yes, it's, like, an astronomical amount. But, like, there's an astronomical amount of people dying every year. I mean, it's it's unheard of. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not even that astronomical. So, I mean, and that's that's where I think we we risk – losing some of the power in, in fighting for what we really need in yeah. terms of funding is, is, is saying it's astronomical because it's not. I mean, we, if you look at, uh, you know, HIV AIDS, uh, at the height of HIV AIDS in 1993, I believe it was somewhere around 40, 43, 44,000 people died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was at the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, right? right. Today in 2019, we're looking uh, upwards of $20 billion a year that goes towards HIV prevention treatment research uh, every single year in this country, more than $20 billion per year, right? Mm -hmm. So last year, 72,000 people died from preventable drug overdoses. That's only drug overdoses, not including alcohol. Um, You know, if you include alcohol, you're looking at north of Mm 125,000 people a year. So like massive 
uh, more amounts of, of folks that are dying uh, from, from overdoses uh, and, and alcohol, yet we would be lucky to find, you know, in support for Communities Act, I mean, we're looking at maybe if we get all the money somewhere between six to seven billion dollars uh, over the course of the next several years. I would, I would go as far to say that we've maybe seen investments since Obama's been, been pre- since Obama was president and going into the Trump administration, maybe of $5 billion total, right? Mm-hmm. Total over the course of the last four yeah, to five years. That doesn't sound like much compare comparably. It's, Right. It's not much. But but then again, you've got policymakers who are out there making this a top political talking point, yeah. saying that we're going to solve this crisis. We're going to get funding to communities. And then you've got pieces of legislation like the CARE Act, um, which was uh, it, it, it's a it's a proposal that that is modeled right after the Ryan White Act, mm-hmm. um, which helped curb the HIV AIDS crisis in, in the 90s. Uh, the CARE Act, which dedicates $100 billion over the course of the next 10 years, so about $10 billion a year, which is a good start, and it funds things like prevention, treatment, early intervention, community resources, recovery support organizations, local nonprofits who are on the front lines of the crisis, really giving local control to how these dollars are spent because we know that each community faces its own unique situation um, in, 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 in infrastructure needs. And... Um, we can't even get a committee hearing on that bill. So there's a lot of talk, but there's not much action to follow it up because there are some bold proposals that are sitting in front of Congress right now and some in front of uh, state legislatures. Um, but these um, uh, policymakers and, and politicians um, aren't moving on it. So like once again, we risk being a political talking point without action following it up. That's why I do what I do in terms of the advocacy and the activism and the organizing, the community organizing, uh, because we need to make sure that our people, that people are impacted and people who really care about this issue uh, know that policymakers are just using this as a political talking point and don't have the action to follow it up. I think once they know that we are an organized constituency uh, and that we will vote and get involved and show up at town halls and write op-eds and and be more informed citizens uh, on this issue, uh, they won't stall as much as they are. I mean, some of them just think they can get away with it, and and it is not okay. Yeah, and I see that you have put together a, a program or an initiative that is the what? Tell me the name of it again. Recovery vote. Sure, mobilize. Well, there's um, Recovery Voices Vote, which is um, our initiative to to register uh, people in recovery and their family members with a goal of one million people. Uh, new voters. Um, we're registering folks to vote. We're getting them involved. We're getting them organized. We're getting them educated. Uh, there's that. And then we've got Mobilize Recovery, which is a training initiative uh, where we're bringing, that's actually launching July 11th and 12th. We're bringing in emerging leaders from all 50 states. Um, and we're giving them the tools that they need to organize in their states and their local communities. Um, so we're really taking this fight to the ground level. Well, as I have gotten invested in this topic and read a lot about it, like it's become very kind of ingrained in me to believe and accept that addiction is a disease. And I know that you believe the same, but there are many people out there who haven't, um, who do not believe that. Um, Can you speak about, you know, why we need to get that message out there? Why is addiction a disease and what are people missing? Well, I mean, I don't think I, I, you could talk to scientists and doctors and researchers. This, this information is well published. Um, you know, the science has been out on addiction as a, as a brain disease for quite some time. 
Um, it's unrefutable evidence. Uh, anyone who is out there saying that this is a choice is just undereducated, miseducated, or really doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who has spent any time whatsoever researching uh, this topic uh, will know that addiction is a disease. The risk, though, and 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 there are real risks beyond just this, you know, social media firefight that goes on between is it a choice or is it a disease which ends up getting so much traction which i do not understand but um it 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 always takes off when someone posts that question um the risk of not classifying addiction as a disease has has real consequences right and that means rolling back the disease model if we roll back the disease model on addiction uh, that means we go back to the war on drugs. That means that we're dealing with this as a moral failing. That means we're locking people up as opposed to getting them help or treatment, right? Um, that means insurance payers aren't going to be paying uh, out benefits to get people help or get them continuing behavioral health care supports that they need. So if we roll back the disease model, which is uh, what some people would like to see, um, that has real consequences. And at the end of it, it has a real human toll and a human cost. People will die, Yeah. period. Yeah. And there's some people out there who believe that we should be dead. I mean, I see it uh, a lot on Twitter and other social media forums where people actually have that that thought that like, you know, quote unquote addicts are nothing but filthy junkies and they should be dead. I mean, I hear that and it's just it blows my mind that that we're still having those conversations in 2019. Yeah, that that blows my mind as well, which is why I do think that we need to keep talking about it. Um, but one of the things One of the things that I really liked about the book that stood out to me is where you talk about the anonymity factor. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about AA. That's obviously a huge part of AA. And um, people are pretty much like encouraged to stay anonymous in that regard. I mean, you don't have to, but people do because there's a lot of shame involved. Um, and you have kind of this effort to, you know, get, I'm trying to find the quote you, you wrote, how can we expect anyone to believe we're worth saving if we engineer our lives to be anonymous? And I just, ah, oh, that was so powerful to me because I just, I agree. It's like, what, if you're supposed to be ashamed of who you are and what you've been through, like, how can you really, nothing in the dark can, can thrive and grow and get better. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit and just how anonymity is harmful I wouldn't, I mean, so I'm not saying that anonymity is harmful. What I, what I am saying is I think there's been a misconception on what anonymity means, Mm -hmm. you know, because I do participate in anonymous fellowships, right? I am part of a 12 step fellowship. I do stick to the traditions, anonymity being one of them. Anonymity though, doesn't mean that I can't go out into, into the world um, and talk about my recovery, talk about my recovery experience, um, identify as a person in recovery. Anonymity means that my personal recovery program, which happens to be within uh, a, a 12-step fellowship, I don't identify that. I don't talk about the people that are in there. I should be able to walk into a recovery meeting anywhere in, in the world and just be Ryan um, and, and not have all the other things attached to me on what I do on the outside. It's a spiritual principle Um, And Bill Wilson, uh, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and Marty Mann, who was the first lady, uh, first woman in Alcoholics Anonymous, who is a sponsee of Bill Wilson. um, I I think they, they, if you look back at the history of AA, you know, these two individuals went before the United States Congress, you know, in the in the early 70s and testified on alcoholism. Um, They were very vocal uh, in, in the media. You know, Marty Mann founded the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, which was the nation's very first 
advocacy organization when it came to alcohol and, and, and drug abuse. So like what we're doing today, what I'm doing today isn't new. Like this was started, uh, you know, and if you trace back the history by, by founders of AA, like they went out there and they, they set this ball in motion, but over time, as with any, I think group or organization, um, different, you know, cultural opinions and people's opinions start to form and, and, and things get passed down. I mean, I, I liken it to the Bible, you know, I mean, it's like it, it gets passed down in different interpretations of it all over the place. There's been many different interpretations of what anonymity is. Anonymity though, as it's written in 12 step literature, uh, does not mean that I cannot go out or that I shouldn't go out uh, and advocate and be vocal about my recovery story and help inspire others to get involved and to be uh, to shed that shame and that stigma. Um, that has been a misconception that's been handed down over the years. And it's sad because some people do take it uh, quite literally that you cannot talk about uh, your recovery or you put your recovery at risk outside of a, mm-hmm. outside of a recovery meeting. And that's not what it means. That is absolutely incorrect. Um, and, and all you have to do is look at the history, uh, and, 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 and the founding, uh, of these 12 step fellowships to understand that. Um, but yes, I mean, we do, we do, we, we do, we are up against that a lot, but I do think that's changing. I, I do, you know, if, if you're paying attention to the national narrative and, you know, the, the amount of people, especially young people who are coming out and talking about their recovery, uh, you'll see that that's changing. Uh, and people don't feel that they're disrespecting the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, uh, because it is a misconception um, and it's not accurate. Yeah. I think it's just like for people to feel like people shouldn't feel like they have to. Um, right. you know, keep it a secret. It's not something that has to be, I mean, you can, if you want to, right. But, um, but it should more well, and more and society should be, um, uh, we should be open and understanding and embracing that people, you know, these are issues that people cannot help. Well, absolutely. A hundred percent. But I will also say that anonymity was put there to protect the individual too, because, um, even back in, 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 in the thirties and in the forties and the, in the, the, the founding days of, of AA, um, you know, they wore masks and people were at risk of losing their jobs if they mm. came out and people knew or their kids. Wow, or people wore masks? Oh, yeah. People wore oh, masks. That's interesting. And, um, but still today in 2019, um, the, the, the founding reason for why anonymity is a principle is still alive and well today. I mean, people still lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. People still lose their homes. People are denied life insurance. People are denied medical care. People's kids are taken away. Um, if they know that they had a history of alcoholism or some sort of substance use disorder, I mean, those are real issues and that's why we fight today. So, but dropping anonymity and, and being very public or public or at all and in, in a small or big way, is still a very personal decision. Yeah. Um, and someone has to be in, 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 in the right place to be able to do it. And not every single person is afforded that opportunity to do it because shame and stigma are so real today. And it does uh, kind of seep out into our social system still. Uh, but for those that can, right, for those that are able to, um, it's important that we do, um, you know, step up and, and you, be public and you're, for the ones that don't. Right, the, the you're speaking for others, exactly. Right. I think that's right. so important. Well, you obviously um, have been very public with your struggle. And you, I, I want to ask you about this because you, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I, I will go quick, but um, you have a huge social following. Um, you've built this massive audience um, and you have a very, I really like your kind of, you seem like you have a real positive 
approach to it. Like you're very um, all about bipartisanship and getting, you know, whatever side is supporting the right things. It doesn't really matter what party they are. Um, I'm curious how you were able to build this really amazing following. And then also, I noticed that your book was endorsed by Bill Clinton and some other really major players. So I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, we'll start with the book first. I mean, so President Clinton's my, you know, I worked for him at the White House. And I, that was like one of my first calls when I when I did, yeah. did the book was, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I want you to support it, Mr. <laughs> President. And he was happy to do it. And um then I, I, you know, in the spirit of bipartisanship and, and to show that this is an issue that, that affects everyone and that, you know, we do need bipartisan kind of transpolitical solutions to it. Uh, I, I, I serve on a, on a, on a committee for, for, you know, opioid advocates with Newt Gingrich. And I asked former Speaker Gingrich to, to get involved and Van Jones and um, they were all very willing, you know, and and it and it's the one issue, one of the very few issues that we all can agree on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the the things I wanted to accomplish with the book was to let people know that I wasn't coming from this from some, you know, left of center approach um, that no, you know, in fact, a lot of the solutions and a lot of the a lot of the the agenda items that I was setting out uh, in the book were supported by both sides, you know, and and that's 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 what we need to do. We need to harness the power of that kind of trans-political environment when it comes to solving the addiction crisis and make use of it. Um, I wish we could make more use of it, but but right now it just seems like everything in politics, especially in Washington, D.C., is completely, uh, you know, paralyzed. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to get over that soon. Uh, particular to the social media following, it started um, with one page, one like, you know, and one story. And that was mine uh, in 2016. You know, I had traveled the country that summer, uh, visiting communities hit hardest by the addiction crisis, and um, film. You know, filming these little uh, uh, vignettes, video vignettes of uh, people in recovery. I went into prisons and jails and family members, and met with doctors and uh, policymakers, and and put them up on on social. And uh, it was the only people who would listen to us. We couldn't get anything published in any traditional media, um, so we relied on Facebook. I relied on Facebook and uh, eventually said, you know, after that trip, we need to we need to keep asking people for their stories and um, built uh, what is now the Voices Project, uh, which was asking people to tell their stories, but to tell them for impact, you know, tell a little bit of your story that will help somebody who may not uh, understand, you know, what we're really up against or, or, or what the challenges are in our community. They'll, it'll help them to understand that. Uh, and we received thousands of submissions, and a lot of the stories uh, went viral, and 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 kind of the rest is history. I mean, it's just kind of like one of those phenomenons. I, I don't know. People ask me all the time, like, how did you? I I honestly don't know, but I look back in small increments, and 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 it makes sense now. But um, there was a real desire, I think, out there for authentic storytelling with a purpose, not just storytelling, but storytelling with a purpose, and that's what we offered the audience. Uh, and that's what they responded to. Well, it seems like it's doing very well. So I, I love what you're doing. Uh, one last question um, before I let you go. I, I was curious, you know, if you're if you're looking at someone, maybe talking to someone who is in rehab for the third time or is in a place that you were in, you know, just four or five years ago, um, what's a message that you would send to them? Oh, don't. Uh, such a great question. Don't don't give up. I mean, it is so important. Uh, that you tell people that you really believe in them, even if you don't, 
that you find something to believe in that person uh, that they can actually uh, make it and and be and become what they they truly should be. You know, um, when I was in rehab, um, there was nobody in the world that would talk to me uh, or believed in me or th- thought that I would make it two days, two hours out of that rehab sober. Um, let alone go on to write a book and you know start a nonprofit and do all the stuff that I'm doing. Nobody believed in me except for my mom. My mom believed in me and she told me she believed in me and she told me that she loved me. And I think that uh, those simple words that came out of her mouth uh, time and again, you know, while I was in rehab and in early recovery really helped uh, get me through uh, because I didn't feel alone and I did feel like there was a little bit of hope out there. Uh, and, and on that little bit of hope, I, I built, right? And I built and I found purpose and I found meaning uh, and 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 a life transform transformation uh, began for me. Uh, it is important to tell people, tell someone, a that you love them, and b that you believe in them. Um, those are two really important things, especially when someone is in rehab or in early recovery. They need to hear that. Yeah, that's awesome. I do remember reading that about your mom, and um, it reminds me so much of uh, my cousin who's been going through some of this, and his mom is kind of his rock as well. And I'm just like, that's enough, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, well this, this topic is so layered and we could probably talk about this for hours. Um, but I know we have things to do. Uh, so before you go, I'd love to hear, um, well, number one, are there any books that you recommend outside of your own, of course, which we'll be linking, um, on this topic that people need to read. And are there any books that you've just been reading recently that you would recommend for, for the audience? Sure. I mean, I would say one of the the better books on the topic that I would I would recommend anybody check out is Dreamland by Sam Quinones. It's it's a different story than mine. Um, it, it it it's more from a journalistic point of view, but it'll give you a really good scope uh, of the crisis and how we got into it. Uh, and then I'm I'm actually reading something that is not uh, related to the opioid crisis right now, and that's Shortest Way Home by Pete Buttigieg, uh, oh. just because I'm 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 kind of fascinated by equally fascinated by his story, uh, so I'm reading that right now. Okay, cool. He's he's definitely phenomenal, and I live in Indiana, so um, I'm very interested to see what he does, and I think he's one of the better candidates that we have out there right now for the on the Democratic side. So that's awesome. Well, Ryan, I know you have to go. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, I, I could have asked you like a 100 questions, but I had to pare it down. So um, thanks again for doing this. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.